often people think this is the, the street addict. This is somebody with a needle hanging out. You know, this is the face of addiction. And it's not. It's absolutely not. That's a small segment. It's a the, small group. The mom who um, is at home feels isolated and alone. And so she's using things to cope. It's the the highest percentage of people who use substance are in the legal profession. Almost 40% yeah. of people. So th- this is white collar. This isn't the street drug people. This is everyday people. And for whatever reason, they don't think they can afford the time off. They don't think that they want to be involved. Many, Janet, many people that came to us over the years said the only option was a 12-step program, and I refused. Yeah. Welcome to the Tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 179. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week, we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. And just taking a break, because if you think, oh, 66 days, I don't know if I could do that, then taking that break will show you whether you need to or whether you don't. If you can moderate and drink occasionally and you see a benefit from doing it, I personally don't see a benefit from it now. But if you can do that, that's fine. But if you're questioning whether you should do sober spring, if you're drinking more than one and a half bottles of wine a week, then really you probably should do it. And you've nothing to lose. You've nothing to lose. You'll save more money yeah. than you'll spent doing it, and uh, you'll come, you'll come out of it happy, sleeping better, being feeling more healthy. And you can think about it rationally because when you're withdrawing from alcohol or you know thinking when's the next drink coming, you, you're not in a rational place to observe yourself and your feelings and decide whether you you know drinking's a good thing for you or not. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Or if you'd like to try us out first, then why not sign up for our annual 66-day alcohol-free challenge? It opened on the 1st of September and you can sign up any day during September and you'll get 66 days of online audio and community support from the day that you signed up. And we pick 66 days because that's how long it takes to form a new habit. And you'll learn more about the importance of building new and healthy habits from our podcast guest today. 
And you can get more info and sign up for the Sober 66 Challenge by going to tribesober.com. All the details are on the homepage. My guests today are Dave and Susan Kenny. They believe that understanding the brain is absolutely key to recovery. They're the pioneers of actualized recovery, which is an approach which combines neuroscience, psychology and lifestyle medicine. After running their own residential recovery program for a decade, they've now pivoted to training recovery coaches. So I began by asking them to introduce themselves. Jen, it's lovely to be here. Um, so I, in a roundabout way, doing what we're doing now, I would have had no idea. I grew up in a small town in Ontario and Canada and was very average, didn't have a lot of desire to work with people that were struggling, but then met Dave and the two of us together seemed to have this wonderful idea that we could help people in various stages of recovery. And, um, for me, it was, um, I had family that had had some trauma. There was a lot of grief. There was a lot of loss when I was growing up. And so what, what we've been learning really fits and has helped me in my life put, sort that out and, and create some order out of chaos. Okay. Interesting. So let's go to Dave. Well, I, as you, it's an interesting question because there were some dark periods in my life, Janet, but I didn't think that that was that special. I just thought that was part of life and my life. And when I look back on it, I see it quite differently and I see it as having an impact and shaping who I am today and my ability to help people. But it actually goes back as far as grade four that I had, I had learning challenges, which nobody knew was learning challenges when I was in grade four. So I can think that's 10 years of age. And when I went to school, my learning challenges were so bad, I failed grade four. And my dad was a dad was a great educator and in, ended up being an international educator. And he and the school and the teachers decided to give me a second go at grade four. So to help, help little Dave get through things and learn the fundamentals. I then failed grade four a second time. So how's that for a statement about somebody's brain who isn't working? And yet the report cards didn't say that. The report card said lazy, um, um, unfocused, doesn't care, and yet he thrives and, and does well on the sports field. So it's got to be Dave's willpower and just doesn't doesn't care. Not true. It was one of the darkest periods of my life and, and carried with, with that with that for years is this this sense of Dave is dumb. It's not the case. I ended up succeeding well in, in university and sports and ended up getting an NCAA Division I scholarship to the United States to play hockey. I'm a Canadian, so I guess that's what we do. We play hockey. And I went there to play hockey, not to go to school. And that happened. And so I didn't didn't do well academically, uh, loved, the, loved the athletic part of it. But that's where I found too much of the social aspect of it and got side sidetracked and deeply sidetracked. And that caused a lot of pain in my life for me and for others. And um, and and just thought that that was something I had to do. So I, I struggled with different resources and a meetings and different things like that. And it just didn't click for me. Although, although I took control of my life, it, I wasn't still happy. I was still in a dark place. This dark cloud, I think, is a, what's, a, what's Winston Churchill called it? The black dog. 
followed yeah. that for years. Depression. And yeah, depression and, and all of those things. And Susan and I came together in 2007 or eight and we saw kids and I saw kids struggling like I was. And I see, I don't believe in bad kids. I believe every kid of any age wants to do well. I believe adults want to do well. So does Susan fundamentally. And yet we saw kids struggling and mightily academically, socially, addiction wise, concussion wise. So why can't we change a brain? And can we change a brain? Now, this is 2008. So I hadn't heard of neuroplasticity, didn't know anything about it, knew nothing about the brain. And while traveling for the school, we saw, I, I watched a PBS, uh, which is public television in the United States. And I watched a, uh, uh, a show on this guy, a neuropsychiatrist named Daniel Amen from the Amen Clinics came out and, and introduced his book at the time, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. Now, I knew how to educate, and Susan knew how to educate, motivate, and inspire young people. What we didn't know was the brain part of it. Mm-hmm. And now this guy's saying change your brain. So that the first statement of change your brain, change your life is he's referring to neuroplasticity, our ability to rewire our brain. So what we have today, we do not have tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. So can I just ask you, Dave, you and Susan, you were in teaching, were you? You were, we, both were in edu- we were in education. Yes. Okay. Leadership of the leadership of an edu- of a private school in Canada at the time. And so the okay. book is Change Your Brain, okay? But that changes your life. And that goes to fundamentally a very, very important concept, Janet, that the brain drives behavior. This is a fundamental part to our book, to our teachings, and to the last 12 years of our work at running a private program, private residential recovery program. If the brain drives behavior, which is our choices, our patterns, our cravings, our finances, and if we fix the brain, do we impact our behavior? The answer is resounding yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And when when you, I mean... I know where you're coming from with the neuroplasticity because in 2005, 2006, there wasn't that much out there in the public domain about neuroplasticity, but we hear more and more these days, don't we? So we were far ahead of our time when when we started this in 2008 is when we really had the idea. Janet, there was nothing. And we opened our first recovery program in 2011, which was Brain First. And coming but why back, did you, sorry to interrupt, yeah. why did you decide to apply that exciting knowledge that you'd gained to recovery? What took you into the why, recovery why world? Why not? If, right. if, if mm. it's true that, and, and neuroscience and psychology don't agree on a lot, but they do agree here, the brain drives the whole thing, everything, your behavior. So we're talking the hardware of the computer. Why would you go and deal with the software if the hardware is dysfunctioning? So if the hardware has a virus on your computer, I don't care what software you put on it, what meditation you do, what talk therapy you do, what CBT you do. If the hardware has a virus, well, a virus in brain terms is called a trauma. Yeah. And all of us have gone through trauma. That's a great analogy. I love it. The virus. Yeah. Well, the other thing is alcohol, cocaine, weed. Why do some people use a substance or do a behavior, gambling and shopping, and not destroy their life? And why do others, why does that happen? So that leads me logically to say, well, maybe alcohol is not a purely addictive substance, because that means every single person who drinks it would be addicted in the same pattern. That means then their brain is predisposed to getting relief 
from this chemical or this behavior. Again, we're going back to brain. So if we impact and change the brain, will we help this per person uh, create better habits and change their behaviors? And the answer, Janet, was yes, as we, we applied it. So it was a leap of faith to, to answer that question, why and how. Um, we, we hypothesized this and thought, okay, we've got this. We've got the solution. We are going to help everybody that needs help, everybody that's struggling. So we actually thought, oh, we're going to raise money and we're going to put this business plan together and we're going to get a board of directors and we're going to, we're really going to do all of this right. And we went to our favorite restaurant for dinner and our favorite server wasn't there and she hadn't been there for a little while. So we asked the owners and said, where is Joy? Joy, we haven't seen her. And he, he just, he his head went down and he said, oh, he said, Joy's son, youngest son, committed suicide mm. in her basement. And, um, and, and it just hit us, Janet. We, thought, we, we looked at each other, and before we left the restaurant, we agreed that no more board of directors, no more raising money. If we thought we had the solution, then we've got to start. And six weeks later, we opened our first program. I think you looked wow. at me and said, it's time we put up or shut up. I think that's what yeah. you said. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Too. Yeah, good, and, good point. And then it fell together. And it wasn't, um, as as most things do, we didn't know what the next step was. We knew, we knew we needed a website. We knew we needed to advertise and get people. We knew we needed staff. And, and everything just came together. And within three years, we had a multi-million dollar successful business that was truly, truly helping people. Um, we worked with teens and young adults and their families, and it, it was life-changing for them and for us. And, and since up until COVID, we've worked over the 12 years up until COVID, we've worked with over 2,000 clients and families and, right. and have lived on property or on campus with all of, them, all of them, as well as our team. Our team was at, uh, as many as 28 at one point. And, uh, and then COVID hit. The government restrictions in Canada were quite severe in Ontario, and that caused us to reevaluate. So we okay. shuttered the doors. So it was like a residential clinic, was it, for people to yeah, go and recover it, from substance abuse? Substance, um, anxiety, depression, grief, illness, whatever. So, so recovery just means getting back what you've lost. That was unique and different. And yet the thread that is common to everybody, when they arrived, Dave would say in an, in an interview, you know, if we had a magic wand, what would be the one thing that you want at the end of this? And nine out of 10 people said the same thing. Happiness. They yeah. just want to be happy. It it went beyond depression. It went beyond right. anxiety. It went beyond yeah. suicide ideations and attempts. It went beyond all of the addiction and shame. And we never would have guessed this, Janet. This was stunning to us mm -hmm. that all the pain and, and all the tears um, and all the loss, and they just look with tears in their eyes and say, David, I just want to be happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we're all addicted to happiness, actually. When you think most of the things that we do are driven by a desire to be happy. And deeper than happiness, what, what we've discovered over the years is a good life is a life that matters. And exactly. That's, that's happiness. And With people purpose. can't articulate that in the beginning. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it's a brain when, when we start, it's a brain first program, but not brain only. So we have yeah. five other principles that we apply to help people come through any adversity. The, yeah. the problem with hap- chasing happiness is most people chase happiness at a short term level, at a hedonistic level, right. in an immediate satisfaction. Exactly. They the want things. The bowl of ice, cream, <laughs> ice yeah. cream, the shot of tequila, whatever yeah. that is, the gambling. And that erodes what is my favorite word, eudaimonia. <laughs> and eudaimonia is, is living a life of long-term values. Yeah. And that's where meaning comes in, is making a decision today about what adds to my life long-term, going to the gym versus a bowl of ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and so th- that's, that's really where our whole program but it all is, as you've identified earlier, it all comes through this brain first mm-hmm. lens. It all, mm-hmm. how does everything, including therapeutic modalities, how does it impact the brain? Um, and if it supports and helps the brain function better, then we're all into it. Because I like to think back to uh, when we were in our caves, you know, our ancestors, because they didn't search for happiness, did they? But they woke up in the morning and they were hungry. So they had to go and do some hunting and then they had to build a fire. So they were always busy and they always had purpose. Yet somehow over the centuries, we've kind of lost our our way a bit and we've got sidetracked by all these, you know, things about status and, and material, material things. Yeah. 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 It's going back to basics, isn't it? And and building a life again. And that's yeah. Maslow's hierarchy is the basics, Jen, yeah. and the fundamental part. That's what cavemen did. They weren't wor- worried about being self-actualized. No. <laughs> they, fo- they focused on safety. Yeah. Being alive today, the saber-toothed tiger doesn't get me. I don't need a poison berry. They were focused on the basics every day. Now, our society has afforded us great luxuries mm-hmm. where we can have a safe you know, a cave meaning our homes. We have law and order. So there is a little more structure, which has allowed us to evolve at a higher level. But that's all that's all, that's all they focused on, which is what, yeah. the beginning of our residential program was fundamentally helping the person's body, their sleep, all of that begin to regulate, go back to the basics. And then we built up from there. Yeah, that sounds sounds wonderful. How long would people stay with you on average? So anywhere, the shortest program was two weeks. The longest anybody ever stayed with us was eight weeks. So again, it depends physiologically how how energized they were when they came in, how motivated they were to be able to have change. A lot of it at times had to do with the families. Yeah. What was the support system like? And sometimes that would take longer than the actual person that was with us. It would take a little longer for the families to get into a, um, an understanding uh, and get out of blame and shame yeah. and say, you know, this has to be punitive and, you know, this is what our person has done and they need to, for example, sometimes we had people that would come and they had had anger episodes before. So there would be holes in the walls or there would be wreckage and carnage. And to help a family understand that that was the way that their brain was functioning. It was in fight or flight or it was in a freeze response. And so the reason that the hole in the wall was there isn't because they lacked values and, and willpower. It was that the, the brain got hijacked because of 
the position that it was in. So helping families understand you got to fix that wall before they come home. Right? Sure, sure. It's, a, it's a whole system, isn't it, really? Correct. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. And what happened when they left? How did you help them to stay on track? Well, well part of the program we learned quite quickly is we had a family component. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. essential that anybody struggling with an addiction this is not a, a, a willpower issue. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a lack of willpower. This is a brain issue. Well, that's like somebody with a heart issue or a liver issue. And, I, and one, of my, one of my dreams in this world is that one day an, an addiction issue is accepted by everybody at the same level as a kidney or liver issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that includes family. Mm-hmm. because yeah. family gets stuck in this blame place mm-hmm. and there's a lot of trauma in families and, and the, and those repetitive cycles continue to happen. So we quickly realized this to support people. Uh, we needed to work with the, the, the immediate family, not the extended family, the immediate family mm-hmm. to begin to create a, a safe, loving, accepting environment and one with boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because a lot of the families, actually the problem was they had no boundaries. Right. They had threats, right. which is they better not, they better do this. But there's without a consequence, there's not a boundary. Right. So we coach, sometimes we had to coach that for a family is to create a, a, a safety mechanism with boundaries. Yeah. And yeah. that, and Brene Brown talks about a boundary is what's okay and what's not okay. It's a beautiful it's, definition. It's so simple and it's lovely. So yeah. the, the, the families, when we began to create that, they offered a gift we believe in coming from a place of love and the gift was their support, but here's what's okay. And here's what's not okay. And it empowers then the other individual who was with us to choose which they wanted. So this is a tremendous structure to a, a very healthy structure for everybody. And then, then the individual doesn't feel like they're being told what to do. They're choosing and there's empowerment and choice. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm self-motivated versus being threatened. So when we begin to change all this language and begin to get clarity on it, the families and the individual begin to actually reconnect, which is so important. Reconnect, um, eat dinners together, play a game Mm -hmm. together, Mm -hmm. um, get to know each other as well, instead of always the pointing the finger and blame. Let's move away from that. And so the families uh, together with the individual, our success rates actually um, increased in time. Um, they didn't decrease in time, which is against human behavior sciences. And the reason for that is just because all of our work um, is in the brain. And when the brain starts yeah. to work better, it works even better in time. It doesn't right. work less. So that's called Hebb's law. The more a neuron fires, the stronger it wires. Fancy phrase just to say habits become easier in time. Absolutely. I just wanted to ask you a question about the brain. Uh, I was interviewing a doctor a while ago and he said that some people, I'm sure I was one of them, the dopamine receptors when we're born, they're they're set a bit kind of low, if that makes sense. So for some people, when they do drink, it gives them a real, not so much as a real high, but they just feel kind of normal because that, that chemical is helping the dopamine to to behave as it should. I just wondered what your take was on that because it's it's quite an interesting theory because as you say, not everybody gets addicted to alcohol. Right. 
So our belief, Janet, is that function drives chemistry. And so looking at it in that way, and, and there's certainly a lot of people who believe that chemistry will drive behavior or that chemistry drives the brain. What we've learned and have, have so many, there's so many articles and there's so many documents, and we've certainly proved it in practice, is when you change function, function changes its own chemistry. And so what we focus on is helping the brain come into its most balanced state. And then whatever hormones are being regulated, because it's a healthy brain, because there's balance, because it's a, a, a nutrients are there and hydrated and the function changes, then so do the dopamine and serotonin levels. They, they then take care of themselves. We come at it from from a function, not a chemistry point of view. Yeah, I know a lot of people that I work with, they have um, a real low in early sobriety. You know, they're, they're keeping it going. And I so agree with you. It's not about willpower. It's more about our subconscious, isn't it? And how we see alcohol. So they keep going. They kind of grit their teeth and then gradually it gets easier. And I'm sure that's something to do with the brain regulating itself again, recalibrating and the, the dopamine working as it, as it should work. Well, I had a real low for a couple of months in early sobriety when I thought, what am I doing? I'm crazy. I can't do this. Right. Here, here's a tip for your listeners that, that works incredibly well. So alcohol is a very fast sugar. So when people come off of alcohol, oftentimes the, the brain has become used to thinking that that's the source of glucose. So for your listeners and for anybody who's wanting to change a habit, if you want to feed a brain, a brain does not thrive on fat. A brain does not thrive on protein. So the current way that we're being told to eat is actually the opposite of what the brain needs. So the brain needs glucose and it needs sugar. It, the, the most perfect form is fruit. And we become a fruit phobic society thinking that um, we need to be in ketosis all the time. From a brain point of view, Janet, it could not be farther from the truth. So when I say glucose, it, I don't mean a pastry or I don't mean something that's a fat and a, and a sugar mixed together. What I mean is straight up, whether it's honey, whether it's fruit, whether it's a smoothie that doesn't have protein powder and doesn't have fat first thing in the morning, what you're doing is feeding that liver, which is also feeding the brain. So what you'll find is the brain actually becomes quite relaxed and happy when it's given the proper food, which is the glucose. Yeah. Yeah, so many people get terrible sugar cravings in early sobriety and, and we tell them to try and uh, ditch the chocolate and just eat fresh fruit. Right. As, as you say, that's... Right. And that's... the chocolate has other negative benefits. Mm. So at the risk of being um, hate mail for you, chocolate has no benefit <laughs> to the brain, zero. <laughs> and it's much like caffeine. If you, If you have anxious feelings and you're already somebody who is a little ramped up, the last thing you want to do is provide the brain with caffeine or stimulants, including chocolate. Yeah. So yeah. At, at the risk of, I, I apologize if, if I've... Uh, and you used to love chocolate. I, I absolutely used to love chocolate. Yeah. Well, don't we all? Don't we all? Part of that too, Janet, if I could just jump in, is also 
psychology-wise is our habits and patterns. So if people are struggling, um, I would encourage them to take a look at their habits or their patterns. So is their morning routine the same as it used to be? Is the evening routine the same it used to be? And the only difference is they're not holding a drink in their hand. Well, that's going to be a problem. So my analogy for this is if you go to a movie theater, and when we stopped eating popcorn for all sorts of reasons in movie theaters, there's a habit that I had in my brain, a pattern. You walk mm-hmm. into the theater, you hear the popcorn, you smell the popcorn. I sit, I wanted to eat. Yeah. And, and I had this, this physical sensation that I had to eat or get popcorn. Well, in time, I've been able to retrain my brain. Now I don't even notice the concession stand. I don't notice the popcorn. Yeah. And, and I don't have that craving. But you have to change your pattern for the brain to to rewire its habit. So that's also part of what's going on in early stages of recovery. Um, Another one is you drink coffee and smoke a cigarette at the same time in the morning and you go outside. Well, take your coffee and go, go drink your coffee in the bathroom. Yeah. And, And the likelihood then of you having the cigarette is, is very, very low. So changing your habits and changing your patterns will help rewire your brain. Yeah, and creating a, a healthy neural pathway really to replace the the unhealthy one. Yeah, and we talk about uncoupling because uh, in here in South Africa we have beautiful sunsets, and the the number of ladies that I've met that say, "Oh, I'd love to stop drinking, but I can't imagine enjoying a sunset without a glass of wine in my hand." <laughs> you know, so I try to convince them the sun will still set if they're holding a glass of alcohol-free wine or a soft drink, even. It- Invite them out to watch a sunrise because they won't want wine. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's, I think that's... you hit on something else though. Is and and now we teach recovery coaches, so we've pivoted. Our role now is to share all of our wisdom and share what we learned in the years of living with people, literally twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. We learn nuances that I don't believe many people on the planet have. And when somebody is ready, that's when the coach or whoever it is can support. But until somebody realizes that they need to change or they need to transform or they need to give up, there's a phrase that we use with our coaches. It's people don't resist change. They resist being changed. Yeah. And so if anybody, like the friends that are watching their sunset, if they're not ready yet, there's nothing that any of us can do about that. Sure, sure. We we know that. We, we have a membership and uh, I'm sure a lot of people that join us, I mean, we run workshops and we do the education bit as well, but they join the membership and I'm sure some people think that we've got this magic wand, you know, and we just go, boom, you're sober now. So they, they actually, some people actually leave after a few weeks and you can tell they're just not ready. So we, we you know, we don't get upset because they've gone because we just know they're not ready. And many of them come back and it's like, I'm ready now. So it's, it's interesting. Absolutely. You're right. You have yeah. to be, be ready for Pay this. the course, do what you do and the right people will be attracted to yeah. you and the ones that are not meant to be attracted will not. Yeah. Not at that time, or they might come back. Let's let's pivot to recovery coaching. Let me ask you to define recovery coaching for anyone that's listening that doesn't quite understand what it is. Our definition of recovery coaching is to help people 
be their limitless selves or live their limitless lives. That's it. That's it. Okay. Nice. So whatever the challenge is that's holding somebody back, whether it's a substance or a behavior or a pattern, they want to shift out of that change. We don't typically use the word change. Uh, it's a shame-based word. You have to change means you're bad right now. But if somebody wants to to evolve or transform or shift, um, a recovery coach is fantastic for that. We're the leaders or guides in that process. Um, and, and a great effective coach, recovery coach, does not tell because that now we're stepping into the rescuer role. The moment we start telling people how to do it versus asking questions and believing the individual themselves has their own unique journey. And our job is just to help them find that journey, be help them be accountable to that. And so we have an internationally certified recovery coach certification program. It's an eight-week program done virtually, online. Live. It's done live, yes. And it, it, it's interesting because we seem to attract a very mature audience. Like right now, our class has, an, has a medical doctor in it from New Jersey. We have a reverend. Uh, we have an, a nurse from Western Western U.S. Um, we have an acupuncturist. Mm-hmm. We have a couple fitness coaches. Ex-military. We, ex-military. We have a chef who's a, a farmer. A farmer. So a so farmer wants to open his retreat. So it's it's a but they're all they all come from a diverse background, and yeah. yet they're all a mature audience saying, not only have, do they want to transform their lives, they want to make an impact on people's lives. And they want to create freedom in their own lives. And that's what a recovery coach has the opportunity to do is make an impact and create their own freedom. So yeah. we, we believe something different than many of the recovery coaching programs. We absolutely don't believe that you need your own story. There, there is no significance in having traveled the journey. It doesn't matter one iota. If you've had a past addiction story or um, a mental health story, and the reason that it doesn't is the best coaches, as, as Dave said, coaches don't tell. And it's not about what they've done in their life. The best coaches have to be able to listen very, very deeply Absolutely. and to ask the very best questions, which helps the person create an awareness about themselves to be able to have that shift or that transformation. So I think we differ in that way that it, this is, and, and even when we ran our program, Janet, our staff, as many as, as Dave said, up to 28, we did not share our personal stories with anybody that came on campus because it was about them. It's yeah. not about what we've done and how we've done it in our lives. It's about helping that person and, and really focus and listen deeply and understand what they want in order to, to thrive in life. One of the, the people that's on this course with, course with us right now, in the second class, she said, oh my gosh, she said, everybody, she's a life coach. She said, everybody should take this course before they take life coaching, because this really precedes any sort of shift and change. And I agree to, to help people understand the reason behind what they do for behaviors is absolutely important, more so than just making a goal and making a change every week. Our, our background, though, is far greater than that. 
We're, we're both graduates of the Amen University brain education program. So we're brain coaches. Uh, Susan's also been certified and done a very extensive program, positive psychology, which is a fundamental part of our teaching. You know, I'm in the process of completing my PhD in neuroscience and psychology. So we bring the, a lot, and of course, our uh, background in education and human development and motivation and inspiration. So we bring a lot of that to play. What we what we're, seem to be very gifted at is we can take complex issues like neuroscience and psychology and addictions, bring these three worlds together mm-hmm. and teach this in a very simplistic, um, effective manner and, and give our coaches, a, you know, the tools that they need to go out in the world. And so I'll give you a great example. One of our, we just talked to one of our students, uh, yes, two days ago. She's on another coaching program and she had to do her first ever. She's never coached anybody. She did her first ever kind of a mock mock coaching session for 10 minutes. At the end of the 10, and she used our questions that we provide and kind of our the script that we've provided and a graphic that we've provided and walked them through. She used all these tools and the coach teaching this other course said, oh my God, you must be co- have been coaching for 10 years. And she laughed and giggled and smiled and said, this is the first coaching session I've ever done. So we take these complex issues and really bring it to a practical sense so people can apply it today. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Wow, that sounds great. That sounds so different from the 12-step approach. Do you want to just... Oh, Tell us in a few sentences I, the major go, differences. And I go well, there. Yeah. First, do you, the title for our book. Well, yeah, would, the title, would be helpful. The title for our book is Actualized Recovery. It's not about twelve steps. Recovery right. is a brain thing. If AANA or any twelve step program is helping somebody, please go to it. And if cool. people are struggling, or even people in AA, there's another way too, so that you're not hanging on. But there's a couple fundamental challenges I have with AA. The first thing is step one. I am powerless. Well, there's a, there's a wonderful guy, a wonderful psychologist, Jewish guy. He was, he was a man's search for meeting Victor Frankl. Victor Frankl. Yeah. And he was imprisoned in the Nazi war camps. Terrible. He was in a work camp, not in a gas camp. And, and um, just the atrocities and the hardship, I don't think any of us could actually ever understand but he came he he learned and he was a psychologist he learned a lot from experience one of the things he learned was something called logotherapy and logotherapy is that we all have this is that w- there's a gap there's a stimulus there's a gap and there's a response the gap is the period of time where we as humans always always have the opportunity to choose so there's a stimulus, a phone call on a buddy or a text in a buddy says, let's go have a beer. And there's a gap where I get to respond and then there's the action. So that gap is not powerlessness, Janet, that gap is power. And I am nice, not yeah. going to give my power away 
nor do I want any of us to say I am powerless over. Here's the difference. The moment somebody starts to drink, or maybe the moment they walk into the bar, they are powerless. It's done. But if you back up, at some point in the day, they had that opportunity to change that pattern and habit. So if somebody does a line of cocaine, okay, they're powerless. It's a gong show. I get that. But before that, they they had an opportunity and there was a gap. And that is the power that we have. So fundamentally, when you make somebody say they're powerless, I think, I think you're keeping them in a victim role. When you label them as an addict of any kind, I think you're keeping them in a victim role. And I don't believe that that's a way to thrive in life. And, and, and then Susan's alluded to this, talking about the problem mm-hmm. does not create a solution ever in anything. Right. You can talk about you know, how a building has a broken pipe and learn from it, but that doesn't fix the pipe. You have to talk about how to move forward in that. So focusing on the last drunk in the ditch, which there's a lot of those stories, and the shame that comes with that, no thank you. Now, the last part of this for 12 steps and our approach is everybody defines addiction as a brain disease or a brain disorder. So let's don't let's not get into a debate about disease or disorder. Forget about that for a minute. They all relate it to one thing, the brain. So if the organ is sick or not functioning right, why do we shame them? Why do we why can't we use our name? Why is it in anonymity? Because we don't want anybody to find out because it's a bad thing. Well, I disagree. These are people struggling with pain. The question is why? Why the pain? Not why the addiction. Not why the gambling. Mm-hmm. Why the pain? And let's focus on helping people relieve that. And I am very passionate about helping people relieve that. We often say you have a trigger and then you need to take a pause. But I love reframing that pause as, as power. It's, uh, it's more it powerful. Is, it is power. It is <laughs> yeah, power. Yeah. And the power, if you the to, power to, to choose. So the, here's, here's we talked about this earlier, about creating new habits. If you want to go to the gym and you want to go in the morning, lay your workout gear out the night before, pack your bag, get your water bottle ready, and put it at the end of your bed, put it by the door, wherever it is, because these are triggers for your brain to make it easier. That that also is that gap and that power of making it making this more of a habit in your life. Yeah. 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 Building building new habits is key, isn't it? And yeah. And, and my experience of people that have been to AA, because a lot of people come to us when AA isn't working for them. Uh, a lot of them, I mean, it happened to me too, but it it keeps people stuck, you know, because you're going there listening to all the horror stories every week, sometimes sharing your own. Uh, but but our approach is uh, quit drinking and then build a life you don't want to escape from. And we tend to put the emphasis on building an alcohol-free life that you love. And I don't feel that AA takes you to that second step. It just keeps you stuck. And some people go to meetings for 30 years, you know, and it's it's almost back to willpower again, isn't it? Because that's what they're using. Identity. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. part of the identity and the whole family begins to. And, and we agree with you 100%. If you focus on well-being you will never have to focus on recovery. Yeah, yeah. So if you focus on really, truly 
the elements that bring well-being into your life, you're not looking in the rearview mirror. B.J. Fogg has a beautiful book called Tiny Habits. And the, the, it's not the big things. And this is where people often trip up is, I, I here's my new life and here's what I'm going to do. And the reality of that is it's very short-lived. So the brain changes in tiny increments. So it's more, as Dave said, it's if you already have one habit, and let's say that habit is brushing your teeth, and you do that for two minutes in the morning and the afternoon, what else could you tag on to that already existing habit that is something new that you you want to bring into your life? So I love what BJ Fogg says. It's about the, the smallest things and creating the success. And then you talked about that dopamine hit to the brain. When, when you do something, no matter how insignificant or small it is, you've got to celebrate like you just won the gold medal. <laughs> what this sends to your brain is this beautiful release of neurochemistry, which says, that was a good thing. I want more of that. So it's that the habits are just baby steps. Try little baby steps of good things, whether that's one apple a day. You know, congratulate yourself, high five, you look at what you've done. And instead of focusing on, oh my gosh, here's what I didn't do. And at the end of the day, something that might help your listeners a lot. Often people struggle when they're at nighttime, when they're going to bed, right? The brain just takes off. So proven Marty Seligman, who um, is a, a great leader in positive, positive psychology. If you have a notebook by your bed, because you need that prompt, and before you go to bed, you write down three things that went really well hmm. and why. And it's the why that engages the brain. So if you say, for example, I, you know, something that went very well today, I ate a salad. And if you just put that, there's no emotion to it. The nervous system isn't going to change. The brain doesn't even register it. I woke up. <laughs> it's the why part that actually this is where the, the magic happens. And the same with gratitude. When people say, I am grateful for my socks, there's no emotion to it. As soon as you say, I'm grateful for my socks because I love the color. They keep my feet warm. My aunt gave them to me. There's an emotion now that's connected to that. And you, you're retraining and reorganizing the brain. You are rewiring in that moment. Wow, that's so interesting, Susan. Yeah, I keep a gratitude diary, but and I just say I'm grateful for living in Cape Town, my house, my family, and I don't say why I'm going to carry it on now. And, and be very specific. <laughs> so when you say I'm grateful for my family, what is the evidence that you are grateful for your family? So make it absolutely specific, right? Yeah. Who is the person? What did they do? How do I feel that heart connection to them? And now you're changing how the brain functions. Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you so much for that. You did a press release about, about your book, I think. And in that press release, you said 90% of Americans struggling with addiction don't seek out treatment. And that's, that's really sad, isn't it? And I just wondered how people like you and me can change that. How can we reach people that are 
presumably too ashamed to reach out. I know I was for a long time. You are making a change and a difference. I also believe that as science is catching up to this and as people are beginning to understand the brain and science more, that there'll be less stigma attached to that. And that's part of our mission. Our mission is is Mergle Academy in certifying and training recovery coaches is to help with that number and that question. So our goal in the next couple of years, three years, is to train and certify 1,000 coaches and also business-wise help them get 1,000 clients. And by doing that, little Susan and little Dave here have begun to make a ripple effect impact by one point, one, over 1 million people in the world. And that's how this happens is we begin to share our knowledge and impact people to, for them to share that in the world. And I think, too, it's about the conversation about recovery or looking for help. Often people think this is the, the street addict. This is somebody with a needle hanging out. You know, this is the face of addiction. And it's not. It's absolutely not. That's a small segment. It is That's a the, small group. The mom who is at home feels isolated and alone, and so she's using things to cope. It's the, the highest percentage of people who use substance are in the legal profession, almost 40% yeah. of people. So th- this is white collar. This isn't the street drug people. This is everyday people. And for whatever reason, they don't think they can afford the time off. They don't think that they want to be involved. Many, Janet, many people that came to us over the years said the only option was a 12-step program. And I refused yeah, exactly. to go to a 12-step program. Yeah, Yeah. Well, I was a functioning alcoholic in a corporate space, so I lived that from inside. And many of our members are that. And the the beauty of going into recovery from that space is you've got so much energy that you've been pouring into keeping the show on the road, you know, keeping the family and the job and everything ticking over, even though you feel terrible, that when you, you manage to change, you've got all this energy to focus on something positive. So talk to us about your book and how people can reach you and buy your book. So our our book is Actualized Recovery. It's not about 12 steps. Recovery is a brain thing. If you go to our website, and actually there's a neat thing, we'll offer a free gift on our website too. We have a quiz of Discover Your Coaching Mm. Superpowers quiz. It's free quiz. It's based in positive psychology. You may enjoy it too. Uh, you get to see Susan in a video afterwards, not me. It's not so, just about your superpower. What everybody loves is we also share with you what your kryptonite is. So if you have a strength, that will bring a little kryptonite. And as a coach, it's important to know that. Uh, so there's that on our website, and, and well as uh, some links to the book to for pre-sale of the book. And the book's out in August. If you buy it now, we will make sure that you get a signed copy of our book in early August. And so the Discover Your Coaching Superpowers quiz on our website, it's Emergo Academy, and it's spelled E-M-E-R-G-O academy.com. That's E-M-E-R-G-O for Emergo academy.com. Thank you, guys. That was so interesting. Let's pull out a few key points. When he was at school, Dave had excelled at sport, but he'd struggled academically, which led to him being called lazy on his report cards. 
And these days he understands so much more about the brain. He sees that as a sign of his brain not working properly, as he really wanted to do well. And in fact, he believes that all children and adults want to do well. He got into university on a sports scholarship and became an educator, which is where he met Susan. And in 2008, Dave and Susan noticed that many kids were struggling socially, academically and with addiction. Although back then they knew nothing about the brain and hadn't even heard of neuroplasticity, they started to wonder whether it was possible to change a brain. They came across the work of a neuropsychologist called David Arman. He'd published a book called Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, basically about neuroplasticity, which is our ability to rewire our brains. And Dave explained the concept that the brain drives behaviour, a concept which has been fundamental to their work and which they decided to apply to the world of recovery. Of course, the brain drives our patterns, our cravings and our choices. So if we change our brains, we can change our behaviours. Dave explained that he sees the brain as the hardware of a computer and it's no good addressing the software if the hardware is faulty. So meditation, CBT or any other kind of therapy is not going to work if the brain is not working properly. We have to address the hardware first. He also came up with an analogy that trauma can be likened to a virus on a computer, which will cause our brains to dysfunction. If we impact and change the brain, we can enable that person to create better habits and change their behaviours. For 12 years, Dave and Susan ran their own private residential recovery programme, based on a brain-first approach, helping thousands of people and living on campus themselves. Dave would interview patients on arrival and ask them what they would choose if he could give them anything. Nine out of ten said happiness. We agreed on the futility of chasing short-term goals to be happy, whether that's a shot of tequila or a new car. And Dave shared his favourite word with us, which is eudaimonia. That means living a life of long-term values. The premise being that happiness and well-being come from how we live our lives, rather than the pursuit of material wealth or power. Their approach to recovery fits with Maslow's hierarchy, which has purpose and self-actualization at the top, but physiological needs at the foundation. Susan explained that most of the patients at the recovery centre would be dehydrated on arrival, so no amount of therapy was going to work until that was put right. First of all, they would work on the person's basic health and then the therapies and treatments could come in. There was an essential family component to their recovery programme, which often involved coaching the family how to agree boundaries rather than just making threats. We talked of the importance of changing our patterns in early recovery. You can't just take away the alcohol and carry on with the same behaviour. So many of our patterns involve coupling various activities with alcohol. For example, cooking dinner while sipping a glass of wine. 
We have to work on replacing this habit until we can cook happily without the wine. The more a neuron fires, the stronger it wires. In other words, our new habits will get stronger over time. Dave and Susan closed their clinic when COVID hit and have now pivoted into training recovery coaches, using all that knowledge they built up working in their clinic over the years. Dave's definition of recovery coaching is simply to enable people to live their limitless lives. They have an internationally certified recovery coaching program, which is an eight-week online program. Unlike many programs, they don't believe that a recovery coach needs to have gone through their own struggles with addiction to be a good coach. The rationale being that coaching is about asking the right questions and listening deeply to the answers, rather than the coach sharing their own experiences. One of their students made the interesting point that people should be trained in recovery coaching before life coaching as understanding the brain and why people do what they do should be the foundation for the kind of goal setting that a life coach would do. Dave and Susan are both graduates of the Armin University Brain Education Programme, so they are brain coaches. Susan is qualified in positive psychology and Dave is doing his PhD in neuroscience and psychology. But in spite of their academic qualifications, they believe that they manage to deliver the knowledge and tools required by their coaches in an easily understood format. The curriculum is a mix of psychology, neuroscience and addiction. And they're able to distill complex issues down to a practical format, which can be applied straight away. Their approach is very different to the 12 steps, and in fact their new book is called Recovery is Not About the 12 Steps, It's a Brain Thing. Dave disagrees with step one of the 12 steps, which is I am powerless. A more constructive approach would be Viktor Frankl and logotherapy. He identifies the stimulus, the gap and the response, and we always get a chance to choose during the gap. And the gap is not powerlessness. In fact, that's where our power lies. Labeling people powerless and an alcoholic is keeping them in a victim role. I explained that Tribe Sober's approach is to enable our members to quit drinking and then to build an alcohol-free life they love. And the focus is not on living a life of sobriety, rather on enabling people to thrive and discover what they really want out of their lives. And Susan agrees that if we focus on building healthy habits and well-being, the recovery will take care of itself. A nice tip from Susan to calm the brain before sleeping is to have a notebook and write in three good things that happen during the day and to add why at the end. Same with gratitude journaling. The advantage of adding a why is that that will attach an emotion and make it more meaningful to the brain. It's the why that engages the brain. I loved her sock example when she said, rather than say just, I love my socks, say, I love my socks because they keep my feet warm and they're a beautiful colour. That's what will engage the brain and make us feel good. 
We talked about the tragic statistic that only 10% of Americans struggling with addiction will actually reach out and get some help. They believe the key to change that is to reduce the stigma by education, and their current mission is to create a tribe of actualized recovery coach warriors to impact more than 1 million people by 2026. They have a new book coming out, which is called Actualized Recovery. It's not about the 12 steps. Recovery is a brain thing. You can contact Dave and Susan via their website, which is emergoacademy.com. I'll put it in the show notes. So let me finish by reading out a couple of member messages from our Breaking Free program. What to say to other people is a dilemma for many of us when we start on this journey. So the conversation was around that. Chongo asked... How do you lovely lot deal with entertaining at your place and still providing alcohol? I've got a friend from uni coming over from the States and her family plus Aussie extended family with a history of us all drinking lots together and I haven't even shared that I'm not drinking. So great advice from Emma here. Get lots of alcohol-free drinks in and pour yours in the kitchen so they can't see after a few, nobody will care. At the end of the evening, offer coffee, peppermint tea, and you'll be surprised how many people take you up on it. And also, the people you thought drank a lot probably don't. I've always been so surprised. There's always one that drinks too much, but most barely drink. And I didn't even notice because I spent so much time making sure that my own glass was full. If there's anyone you're close to, just tell them the truth. You're taking a break for health reasons, whatever. I found most people very supportive, and it'll only be fellow troubled drinkers that will struggle. Go to the toilet and message on here if it gets tough, but half the battle is in your own head. Thank you, Emma. You're so right that half the battle is in our own head. Get the mindset right and socialising without alcohol will get so much easier. So that's it from me. Don't forget our annual 66-day alcohol-free challenge opened on the 1st of September. So just go to tribesober.com and all the info is on the homepage. And I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards. And that's just for starters. So go to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.